it's one of the, here's the thing about being a pastor. I, I've shared this before. I've shared this more times than I can count now at this point because it seems like every week or so there's some sort of new thing that that happens that, that sort of transpires and there is sort of this outcry of I hope a pastor says something about this on Sunday and if, quite frankly sometimes it feels like if a pastor doesn't say something about this on Sunday you have to wonder if the pastor was just like entombed um, like like a vampire between Sundays just like laying still and quiet and doing paying no attention to anything sometimes it feels like that and this is one of those weeks um, for obvious reasons so uh, for, for those of you who watched on Wednesday and were horrified absolutely horrified by the we'll just call it what it was a terrorist attack on our nation's capital earlier this week um, and you thought to yourself what what do we say what do we do how do we how do we process this kind of thing after everything else that we've had to sort of deal with and process it's like the hits just keep on coming and this was such an assault and such an affront and such a um, such such a jarring event for for so many people who watched it and you you see that and I mean it happened on Wednesday and like so I had a few days to sort of think through like what do you, what do you say but then there's also the, the pastor's brain in me it's almost it's almost like this trauma response that I've learned which is don't prepare anything until Saturday because you don't know what else might happen you know and so um, so it's hard to know what to say and I um, I, I I don't want to alienate anybody and I don't want to um, be somebody who just like shakes my fist in the air and, you know, is, is mad at everybody else without any sort of introspection at all. Um, I, I don't I don't feel like that's particularly helpful most of the time. But at the same time, you do feel like you have to say something. And I, I mentioned on Twitter, um, because that's where I do all my, my best mentioning, um, that the, the most disturbing thing to me, I mean, there were a lot of very disturbing things. Uh, to witness on, on that day. But the thing that really kind of struck me and the thing that, that kind of stayed with me the longest was in the midst of this massive act of terror and violence, there, somebody decided to like put up a giant cross. And so like that's, the, those images are always the ones that sort of like hit my radar first for obvious reasons. Um, I, I be, because I, I see that and I think like, oh, there's a, there's a whole group of people out there who think that they're speaking for me. You know what I mean? Because when you're a pastor, you don't get to decide how everybody sort of like what, what bucket you go in in the minds of everybody else. Somebody sees a giant cross and they're like, got it. Churches. Churches are endorsing this. So it becomes sort of this this calling card, this sort of this moment of like, okay, there is there there is a portion of the group of people who are committing violence, who are doing it, thinking that, that, per that, that they and I are part of the same movement. And so that's the moment where you feel like, okay, well, now you have to say something because if you don't, then your silence becomes complicity. And in, in the U.S. for, this is not the sermon, by the way, that, like, that I just wanted to say something and then we'll pray and then we'll go. But uh, in the U.S. For, for the past decade or so, we, we have seen an ever-increasing number of people who are saying, I'm done. I'm done with the local church. I'm done with groups of people who claim the name of Jesus, but then like kind of exhibit lots of things that run contrary to those ideals and those principles. And the main reason often cited when people say, I'm leaving, I'm done, like the, the, the most growing group of people in any sort of religious affiliation in the U.S. right now are people who are, were affiliated and now are no longer. And so what's going on there is the, the reason most often cited is hypocrisy and the politicization of churches and pastors. And 
I know your friend. If, if, if that is you, if you tuned in today thinking like this is the last one, like I'm, I'm going to see what this pastor has to say and then I'm done. I know your frustration. I feel it. I share it. Um, if, if you have spent years watching people in the public spec, uh, in, in the public sector, I almost said specter. That's the wrong word. Watching people in the public sector and in the public eye do things and say things and connect faith in Jesus to what most of us would kind of categorize as unacceptable behavior, then that's a problem, right? And if, if you if you share that frustration, like you are not alone. Like when if you years ago, if you watched the Attorney General of the United States use a passage from the Book of Romans to justify putting children in cages, and you thought that shakes me in ways that I cannot explain. You are not alone. If you watched a video of a well-known evangelical author punch a peaceful protester in the face and run away, and that bothered you, it should, it, that should bother you. It bothered me too. If you've watched church leaders discouraging members of their own churches from wearing masks and, and practicing social distancing, putting neighbors and essential workers in direct and immediate danger during this pandemic, and that has frustrated you. It frustrates me too. And I know there are lots of us who are so frustrated and so disappointed that so many faith leaders have endorsed and aligned themselves with people and behaviors that led directly to last Wednesday's attack. You could actually 81% of white evangelicals, if we're being specific. And if, that, if, if you are frustrated with that, I share your frustration and I share your disappointment. And the thing that I hope that, that I want to say is white Christians, me included, we need to own our part in what is happening and in what happened on Wednesday. We are not blameless in this and we need to understand that. I don't have words. I don't have words to speak any sort of like wisdom or new insight into this. I really don't. I don't know what to say. I, I feel like I've been saying it, but it doesn't ever feel like it's quite enough. Which leaves us with the question of, well, what is, what is our job now? Our job is to continue to pursue and engage shalom in the world, even when the people who should be leading us refuse to do so. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to try and do, at least. So here's the thing. If, if you, at this, if at any point in what I'm saying, if you, be, if you felt a little bit defensive, if you feel like maybe you're one of the people I'm talking about, if, if you've been one of the people supporting possibly the path that led us here, it's not too late to become the kind of person who says, no more, I'm out, I'm done. The violence, the hateful rhetoric, the dehumanization of others, it has to stop. I will not put my name next to that any longer. It's not too late to do that. I say this not out of any sort of like, again, like shaking my fist or anything like that. I say this out of love for my friends and um, the people I know in my life who have struggled with these kinds of things. I say this out of love for the local church. And I say this out of grief for what we have become in the eyes of most people in the world. As a pastor, I don't know any other way of saying this. This is killing us. And if you care about the local church, if you care about the next generation of people who want to be a part of the local church, but they don't know if they can, we need to be better than we've been. These things matter. And we need to pay attention. And we need to own our part in this. And we need to say, we will not participate in the dehumanization and the violence for one more minute. If you are angry, I am too. And I hope you find peace. I'm searching for that as well. 
And if you're disillusioned, which again, I am too, I hope you find hope. I hope you find some sense of, okay, we can, we can work towards shalom for a little while longer. Maybe we can keep trying. Maybe we can keep trying to push something good into the world. That's our job. It's not the media's job. It's not a political party's job. It's not Congress's job. It's our job. Our job is to push shalom, is to, is to help heaven collide with earth. That's our job. And so now it's time for us to do it. Let me pray for us. God, we, we, we thank you that more people weren't harmed than were on Wednesday. And for the lives that were lost, we grieve alongside their friends and their families. And for those of us who are shaken to our core, for those of us who are so frustrated with our local churches and church leaders and the Christians in our lives, may we, may we find a path that leads to shalom. May we find that we can be patient. May we find that we can be hopeful. May we find that we can offer grace whenever that is possible. But really, as, as people as specifically for most of us, for me, as a white Christian in the United States, may I be self-reflective enough to see my own part. May, may I repent when I need to repent. May I choose a better path when a better path is visible. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. I don't know if there's anybody left. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's watching anymore. We're actually going to get into the sermon now. So uh, if anybody's still with us, if like the one or two people that are still like tuned in, thanks for hanging in there with us. Um, anyway, we're going to talk about baptism because that seems deeply relevant right now. Um, but that's the thing about the lectionary. Sometimes, sometimes the lectionary gives you, um, you know, exile and like strength to carry on. And other times it's like, let's talk about baptism. So, Okay. Um, anyway, so yeah, in the, I, I mentioned last week that what we're going to do, this is a hard left turn, by the way, like there's, there's no transition suitable to go out of what I just did into what I'm about to do. So, um, just like, hold on just real quick as I totally do this non sequitur of like, let's talk about baptism. So the subject in the lectionary this week is baptism. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 19, because I said last week, we're going to follow the lectionary wherever it leads us, and this is where it led us. So let's, let's see what we can do about that. And if you're already like, okay, first of all, you just did that whole thing that I did not necessarily want to hear, and now you're like, no, we're going to talk about baptism. Cool. Sounds like a great day to, oh, wait, it's snowing outside? There's nothing you can do. Like, there's, no, there's nowhere to go. I guess it's another, who knows? Anyway, I just now looked out the window. It is snowing outside. What is happening, Texas? So um, anyway. Maybe you grew up in a specific tradition surrounding baptism. And maybe your tradition had certain like rules, uh, methods. If you grew up in any sort of church, it probably had a way of doing something that it called baptism. And the thing about that is like you might have grown up with a certain idea of what baptism was. And then a friend invited you to go to his church camp or whatever. And then you went to that other church's thing and they said, okay, we're going to do baptism. And in your brain, you were like, I know what that is. And then they come out and they do it a totally different way. Like maybe you grew up and they dunk people all the way under the water like I did. And then you visit your, your Methodist friend's church on a Wednesday or whatever. And they're like, we're going to do baptism. And then they just do a little sprinkle and you're like, where's the rest of the water? And it becomes like this sort of weird kind of thing of, 
well, is there a right way to do it? Is there a wrong way? Like, is there a specifically, like, are there correct methods here? Um, but again, maybe maybe you attended a type of church where not only was there a specific tradition surrounding it, but it was like, if you don't do baptism in the way that we do it, you can't join our church. And like, that's a whole thing too, right? Because like, well, I, I was baptized at this other church, but they did a diff- they, you, they did different things with the water. And so now I'm at this other church and I'd, I'd like to join. I'd like to be a member here, but they say I got to be baptized the way that they be baptized. So how, it's, it's just this weird sort of thing that we do. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking like, how if, if aliens landed and you had to explain baptism to an alien, how would you do it? Like, in what way would that make sense? It's like, okay, there's this thing that we do. Kids do it all the time. First of all, pretend you're dead. And then you go under the water. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, he's not dead. He's alive. He comes back up out of the water. You know, does that make sense? Most, I think most aliens, most of the aliens that I know <laughs> would be like, I'm sorry, you've lost us. Um, it's a pretty strange practice when you really think about it. It's, 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 a, it's, not, it's not a thing that makes a lot of sense outside of tradition. And it's funny, I think, because, I, again, I, I grew up going to like youth camps, and one of, one of there, are, there are speakers at youth camps who, like the low-hanging fruit, if you want to get a good laugh, is to make fun of the traditions of other religions. Hilarious, right? So um, anyway, and I remember several times, like I would hear a youth camp speaker like make fun of other religions and other traditions, and sometimes even other denominations. Like, well, that's weird that they do that, right? And I always want to stand up and be like, we do baptism. Baptism is strange. Can we just at least get on board with the idea that baptism is a weird thing that we do? So, <laughs> and it is funny that we're in the middle of this this season where like we're keeping our distance and we're not doing baptisms, like very specifically not doing baptisms. And so, um, so it does feel like this is this feels a little bit out of touch. But what if here's the here's the big turn? What if it turns out the baptism isn't actually just about the baptism at all? Maybe it actually points to something much much larger. Maybe it's actually just this very small idea that we use as a way of sort of channeling a much larger idea. So that's what we're going to get at. So if I've already lost you with my hilarious baptism jokes, then uh, sorry. I, if, if I haven't lost you by now, you're not going anywhere is my, my guess. So anyway, um, so we're going to look at the book of Acts chapter 19, and we're going to sort of just kind of see where that takes us. So in Acts chapter 19, um, I should have had my Bible open and ready to go. I got out my easel pad today. Let's see if that comes in handy. So in, um, in Acts 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, When Apollos was at Corinth, Apollos is one of the early teachers in the, in, in the, uh, in the church. It says, When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So now Paul has, and Paul is this guy. <laughs> I always refer to Paul as like this one guy. Uh, Paul is a guy who wrote many of the letters that we find in what we now refer to as the New Testament um, and so the, in the book of Acts, you have lots of stories about basically Paul's, we'll say, adventures. So it says, um, so Paul arrives at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Which is a weird like first question. I assume there were other like, hey, how's it going? What's your name? Questions. But at some point he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. To which Paul replied, Bruh? Sorry. Look, I'm trying to keep it light. It's been a heavy week. Let's let's just all pretend like I didn't just now do that. Okay? All right? Okay. So, anyway, it says... So it says, So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? 
They say John's baptism. Okay, let's stop here. So now there's a question about two different types of baptism, possibly. What do they mean? So Paul says, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they're like, what are you talking about? That's crazy talk. And Paul says, well, then what kind of baptism did you receive? Which sounds, again, like that's a weird question to ask. And they say, well, we received John's baptism. Which raises some questions, right? Like, who is John and what is John's baptism? So hold your place in, in Acts chapter 19 and jump over to the book of John chapter 1. So in the book of John chapter 1, you've got a guy named John who is not actually the John who wrote the book of John. There's Look, it's a common name. It's been a common name for thousands of years. We've just got to deal with it. So in the book of John, there's another guy named John who's often referred to as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. Um, having grown up, Baptist. Um, we were always quite partial to John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is baptizing people um, by dunking them all the way under the water in, the, in a river. And so here's, here's a little encounter he has with some of the local teachers. Because when you're asking the question, what kind of baptism did, did you receive? And you're Paul. And the person you ask say, say we received John's baptism. A good question would be like, what does that mean? So in John chapter 1, verse 19, it says, now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So John is doing something, and somebody sends a group of priests and Levites, which are the people who work in the temple, like the holiest of places, and this group of people are sent to ask John some questions. So if you are a priest slash Levite, and you're working in the temple, and somebody says to you, hey, go figure out what this guy John's deal is. That's like that, that's not something they, they would do for just anybody. So John must be doing something that is catching the attention of the people who work in the temple. And then in verse 20, it says, He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Good to know. Then it says, They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So <laughs> they're just kind of going back and forth. Well, are you? It's like playing, you remember that game, Guess Who? Like, are you the man with the mustache? I don't know. Listen, okay. Anyway, um, I don't know what's funny and what's not. It's been a year since I was in front of people other than Caroline here, and um, she she laughed. So I'm assuming everybody laughed. Whatever, it's fine. Thank you for laughing. I appreciate it. Uh, then it says, uh, it says finally, they, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? In other words, the people in the temple want to know, what is your deal? Who are you? Why are you out here baptizing people? And then in verse 23, it says, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees, who are a group of religious authorities, says the Pharisees who had been sent to question, who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So it, it, so it gets into this whole question of like, who are you and why do you baptize? Here's the thing though. And we, there, there's a whole other, like there's a whole other sermon dealing with like all the code that John is kind of speaking in and like the, the quotes from Isaiah and all these kinds of things. Here's the thing though. This is a really important question. Why do you baptize? They are sent. The, the religious authorities have, have noticed, hey, there's a guy on the outskirts of town baptizing people in a river. And we are deeply concerned about that. And we're so concerned, we're actually going to send people out to see why he's baptizing people. So here's the thing. Here's, what, here's where this question is rooted. In the Jewish tradition, there is a thing called a mikvah. A mikvah is basically, it basically looks like a, a bathtub. 
And the mikvah is, if you were to go into, at, at this time in history, if you were to go into a Jewish temple, I mean, presumably certain synagogues even today, depending on how orthodox you, you might be, um, you would go into a temple, and before you were allowed to go all the way in and do certain types of like practices, you have to make sure that you're ceremonially clean. But the way that you do that is it's not just like you like pray a certain type of prayer or you abstain from certain types of foods. You have to actually physically clean your body. And so there is a tub in the outer area of the temple that's called a mikvah. And so you would get in the tub and you would wash your entire body and not until your entire body is fully clean as per the standards of the temple itself, you are not allowed to go in and, and practice the rituals and the traditions of the temple. The mikvah is where you would go to cover yourself in water, to baptize yourself, to immerse yourself and make yourself ceremonially clean enough to go into the temple. And the thing about the mikvah is, if you are working in the temple, if you're one of the priests or the Levites, or if you're one of the people whose job it is to oversee all these things, one of, the, one of the pieces of power that you have is you get to decide when a person is clean and when they're not. So you get to decide, one, who, like, has this person gone and used the mikvah to our standards? But also they can decide this person is so unclean, they're not even allowed to use the mikvah at all. That happened all the time. And so what you have is you have this device, this cleansing device, the mikvah, where people would immerse themselves in water. And the, and the mikvah was this way, had become what, what had once been this way of saying like, we, we go before God as people who are clean, who are ritually clean. It had become sort of this instrument of power and abuse by the system. And so the people running the system are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Somebody is on the outskirts of town doing mikvah rituals without our consent. Somebody go out there and see what's going on. So the reason they're concerned about this is John is basically undermining their power and undermining their authority. So it is possible that a lot of the people that John had been baptizing had already been turned away at the temple and had already been told, sorry, you can't come in here. For one reason or another, you are not acceptable to us or to God. They had sort of designated themselves as the gatekeepers of who is and who isn't welcome here. And so John's baptism is a way of saying, no, 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 we don't get to decide. We are not the bouncers at the door. We, we are, it is not our job to stand there and check the clipboard and see who, who is and who is who's out and who's in, our job is to tell everybody that they're in. Our job is to tell everybody that they're welcome. So John is baptizing people. He is washing people. He's performing mikvah ritual in the river on the outskirts of town. He's not in the temple. He's not using a traditional mikvah. He's not even screening the people to make sure whether or not they, they can be designated as clean. John is telling everybody, you are clean and you are loved, you are welcome, you are accepted by God. No wonder the religious authorities wanna know what, he's, what he thinks he's doing. This is highly subversive. John is critiquing a system that has spent generations telling people they are either in or they're out. There is this whole system in place that has decided who gets to be in and who gets to be out. And John says, I re, I'm, John, John says, I just fully reject the whole system. I'm going to go out. I'm going to baptize people in the river. And whoever shows up, that's who gets to be baptized. That's who gets to be that, like washed in the ceremonial mikvah that is this particular river that wasn't even particularly clean. So the point of baptism was never how is the water administered. It, like the, the, the debate between sprinkling or immersion is irrelevant. 
the, like the water itself, quite frankly, is irrelevant. The point has, has never been the water or how the water is used. The point has always been what the water represents. So for John, when we talk about John's baptism, for John, the water represents the message that you are welcome, that you are invited, that you are loved, regardless of what some other religious leader told you. You are invited to be part of something much larger than yourself. Put it another way, the baptism of John is all about inclusion. So when Paul asked this group of people, how are you baptized? And they say, we were baptized in the baptism of John. What they're saying is, we have been told, it is our tradition that said it. Our tradition tells us that we baptize people because God loves them. We baptize people because they're, everybody's accepted. When they say we baptize in, in the tradition of John, they say, like, we, we understand that we're not the gatekeepers. Like, that's a beautiful kind of thing. And now this group of people in Ephesus is opening up to a new dimension because now Paul has said, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Which is like the weirdest question you could possibly just ask a group of strangers. And so Paul wants to, so what Paul is doing here is he's not undermining it. And he's not saying like, this is wrong. Don't do this anymore. What he's, instead of that, he's not saying go from this pod to this pod. What he's saying is, okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to expand our understanding of what we mean when we talk about baptism. We're, we're going to take what we already understand about John and the mikvah and cleanliness and inclusion and welcome. We're going to take that and we're going to start from there, but we're also going to expand it in a way that makes things bigger and more dynamic and more interesting. This group of people wants to know, is there more going on here? There's a whole new dimension. Paul wants to expand their understanding of what it means to be a part of this Jesus story. So now let's go back to Acts chapter 19. So in Acts 19, so they, they've had this weird conversation about like, well, what kind of baptism have you done? And they say we've been... Um, John's baptism. So then in verse four, it says, Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And repentance is another way of uh, return. It's, it's about like everybody gets to become more of who they were created to be. It says, he told them, uh, John's baptism was a baptism of, of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, which, okay, this, this sounds very weird. And we're going to get into this in a second. So, and then it says there were about 12 men in all. So, um, first of all, what's Paul talking about? Second of all, what in the world is happening here? Why, like, Paul has magical, like, finger powers. Like, he, he, he they say, like, we were baptized, like, John's baptism. And, like, he's like, yeah, yeah, I understand John's baptism, but let me tell you about this other baptism. And then he touches them, and, and it says, they spoke in tongues and prophecy. Like, okay, again, what, what do you even do with this? This is, like, ma magical, mystical type of, of um, imagery here, and it's very difficult to think, like, oh, well, this is clearly applicable in this way in, in our time. No, this is strange, and we need to sort of kind of deal with it. What is Paul talking about, and what is happening? So, again, hang on to Acts chapter 19, and then let's jump back over to Acts chapter 2. So, the first time you ever see anything referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which, again, is a weird phrase that we haven't fully unpacked yet, anytime you see that, um, the first occurrence of that happens in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, 
uh, just beginning in verse 1, I'll just read this whole story and then we'll kind of address what's going on. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, and Pentecost is, is a ceremonial holiday. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, and when it says all together, it means all the people who were following Jesus. And it says, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then, and, and then if you kind of, if you have a footnote in your Bible and you look down, you see that the word tongues is just another word for languages. You with me? So it says, they started speaking in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in, in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears, hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, um, Elamites, resident, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, <laughs> Uh, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene. P parts of Libya near Cyrene. That's a very specific dialect, is it not? Like I hear, I hear subtle hints of Southern Florida. You know what I mean? Like that's that's how specific it's getting here. So it says visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Jude Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, "What does this mean?" And so, and then I love in verse 13, we just have to include this. It says, some of them made fun of them because, uh, and said they had too much wine. Because sure, because we all know that, that once you've had that one extra glass of wine, you can start speaking in like Southern Cappadocian. Like that's, that's a thing that happens all the time when, when you've had too much wine. So anyway, this story that we just looked at, this is the beginning of what Paul later begins referring to as the baptism of the Spirit. So what happens is you have this group of people who have all already participated in the thing that John was doing, and they're all gathered together, and it says the Holy Spirit showed up. Again, whatever that means. We could spend hours trying to figure out like the, like the physics of all of that or whatever. But the, the general idea here is what happens is this group of people has gathered together. And this group of people is diverse. Like they're from all over the place. They're from all sorts of different regions and speak all sorts of different languages. But somehow when they have gathered together in this one place, specifically for the purpose of connecting through the story of Jesus, all of a sudden they are able to speak the languages of one another. There's one way to read this, which is like completely literal, but there's a, a bigger way of looking at this. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're telling me the people who had no way of understanding each other. And, and they, they had only ever been taught that the people who were looking at them were foreign and different. All of a sudden, they're able to understand one another in new sorts of ways. What happens here? People are able to speak in the languages of people who were once foreign and other to them. People see and understand each other in ways that they never could before. People who were once divided by language and culture are now part of the same ever-expanding tribe. Put it another way, John's baptism is about understanding that you are welcome and loved. I would argue the Spirit's baptism is about being able to see that other people are welcome and loved. Baptism of the Spirit begins when we see that other people are just as human and valued as we are. What, what is the very first thing that happens when the Holy Spirit shows up in this story? Oh my word, everybody here 
is connected. Everybody here can understand and see each other in new sorts of ways. By the way, this is an aside. It's just sort of a thing that happened in my head just now, but it, it probably bears like looking into. In Genesis chapter three, when the very first negative consequence of a decision happens, what's the first thing that happens? This, th these two people eat a piece of fruit and the very first thing that happens is they separate from each other. They cover up. They were once intimate and they once saw and understood each other. And then the first wound that is inflicted is we are other from each other. We are a little bit farther apart. We see each other just a little bit less than we used to. And then here, when the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs, what's the first thing that happens? This group of people understands each other. This group of people sees each other for the first time. John's baptism is about understanding you are loved. You are accepted. The Holy Spirit's baptism is a way of saying, by the way, so is everybody else. I would argue that anytime we develop an ideology that relies on seeing other people as less than us, anytime we can make a statement about a group of people and throw that entire group of people in an, other, in an other's category, or we develop habits and behaviors that we only even do so that we can make some other group of people feel bad or disempowered, we are not participating in the baptism of the Spirit. We are participating in a move against what is going on here. So let's go back to Acts chapter 19, where it says, so Paul, like he says, he laid his hands on them and they spoke in tongues and prophecy. Now this, in a couple of weeks, actually, we're gonna get into what, we, what do we mean when we talk about prophecy. Uh, but prophecy, the, these two Phrases, tongues and prophecy, these are often two of the most misconstrued, misidentified, abused terms that we find in most of the New Testament. This, this is easily um, mishandled. So again, we talked a second ago about how quite often in Greek, this word tongues is just a substitute word for the word languages. So again, it's about being able to communicate with people that you couldn't communicate. It's not about being able to like say things that are incoherent. It's, it's ne not necessarily. It's, a, it's about being able to see and understand one another in new sorts of ways. And prophecy, again, we'll get into this. Prophecy is not like, I can see the future now. In, in the ancient Jewish Hebraic idea of prophecy, again, it's not about being able to see the future. It's about being able to look around and to be able to speak truth, even when truth is a difficult thing to speak. So tongues and prophecy. Tongues is, I see you and I understand you. And now you see me and understand me a little bit better too. And prophecy is also, there's some stuff going on and the system, and there are, there are, there are groups of people, there are, um, there, there are abuses of power, there are systems in place that are harmful. And prophecy says that is unacceptable and we, we will not remain quiet. So again, these terms can often be deeply misconstrued. So what happens? So John's baptism is about inclusion. It's about saying you are valued. But here it says, then they received the Holy Spirit and they were able to, they were able to speak tongues and prophecy, i.e. they were able to see one another in new sorts of ways, but also they were able to look around and see like, oh, we have some work to do. So uh, I would argue um, baptism of the Spirit is about empowerment. So the baptism of John is about inclusion. The baptism of the Spirit is about empowerment. It's about being able to say like, okay, now you have been given something sacred and it's your job now to go and take something good and beautiful and life-giving into the world. And again, the idea of 
this this idea of tongues really trips people up. And I was trying to think this week about, or not just this week, like a couple of weeks ago when I started thinking through this, about like how do you how do you communicate this idea in a in a place where most of us already speak the same language? Otherwise, you're just speaking a metaphor. But I was thinking of um of the example of Black Lives Matter, and. I've seen I've seen this phrase. These three words have really tripped people up, and, and have really confused people, and have really caused people to get deeply defensive. Even sometimes, sometimes people like feel defensive, even though they don't know why they feel defensive about it. They just they hear it and they think like, oh, I don't like the way that feels um, when they hear the phrase "Black Lives Matter." These are white people I'm talking about, obviously. So. Um, I've seen people who get really defensive about the phrase, but I've also, over time, specifically over the past year or so, I've talked to several people who at some point have had an encounter with somebody, who have had a conversation with somebody, and that person explained to them like what, like, what this phrase really means and what this phrase means to people of color and, and how, how this is heard by people who have felt marginalized and um, subjected to violence for hundreds and hundreds of years in this country. So I've seen people go from, I feel really defensive and I don't like this phrase, to like, oh, okay, I see. It, it's, not, it's not the thing that I assumed it was. It's not the thing that I was told that it was. It actually is a way of saying, don't forget that our lives are, are that our lives matter. Like not, not are like more important, not are better, not are, but just matter. Just like it's uh, there's a whole Michael Shea bit about this. It's just matter, and and so I've I've heard people, uh, I, I've had people come and tell me like I, I I felt defensive about this thing for years, and then I heard this one person explain it in this way, and all of a sudden I'm like oh, I get it now. This is what we're talking about when we talk about being able to speak in the tongues of other people. We're talking about sometimes. Sometimes it's very difficult to get through to somebody who has their defenses up. And it's, sometimes it's very, very difficult to have a conversation with somebody who always just wants to argue. But every once in a while, someone is listening. And every once in a while, we can be the people who are listening. And there comes these moments where we realize like, oh, okay, I see. There is a way of saying this. There is a way of communicating that does not dehumanize the person I'm talking to and actually helps sort of open up new avenues of conversation. Are you with me? Um, I, I, I was, I was at a conference a, a few years ago and there was a guy in, um, in the front row and he, there was a Q and A between the, the speaker and, and, um, the rest of us. And this guy raises his hand and he says, Hey, um, he says, he, he just tells the speaker, he says, I am gay. And I came out to my parents about five years ago and, um, they still haven't, accepted me. They still, they still are, are telling me that I'm, I'm not part of the family and I won't be until I like change back or whatever it is that they think I'm, I'm going to do. And I've tried really hard to sort of like explain to them how this feels and what this means and like, how, like how damaging this is. And like, what do I say? And the speaker I thought said something really profound, which was like, maybe, maybe you're not the person who, who will ever be able to help your parents see you in the way that you need to be seen. Maybe maybe that's maybe that's not a thing that they can hear from you right now. Um, and what he was saying is like maybe maybe at some point down the line they will encounter somebody who can explain it to them in a way that really sinks in and really connects. And um, and and I the guy who asked the question was like I mean that that's a hard thing to hear, but also he said yeah he said that makes a lot of sense because I feel like I'm just banging my head against the wall. And um, and this is what we're talking about. When we talk about baptism of the Spirit, we're talking about the, the ability to, to, 
to meet people where they are, to speak to people in the language that they can understand. And sometimes, sometimes we're just not the right person. We're not the right messenger for that. And sometimes it just takes a lot of patience and it takes a lot of grace. Um, and sometimes we're the ones, quite frankly, who need to listen and we're the ones who need to hear. Um, so baptism of the spirit is about this ever growing realization that you are empowered to participate in a larger story, to make people more aware that there is love and grace and peace that they can participate in, that it's there for them, but it's also there for the people in their lives as well. So let's uh, continue into Acts chapter 19, um, just a little bit further. So in verse eight, it says, um, it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, by the way, is just another way of saying like the, the coming of shalom here and now, the, the realization of what Jesus is trying to do here in this space. So it says, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way or the, 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 the way of Jesus. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them or with him and had discussions daily in the lecture halls of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I love, I think this is the, this is almost hilarious. I think it's so interesting. And so again, kind of funny that immediately after Paul tells them this message of empowerment and like, you can find new ways of speaking to people that everybody will understand. The, the very next sentence is like, and he spent three months banging his head against a wall. And then he had to go on for two more years doing the same thing in other cities. The narrator tells us that Paul spent two years completely like, like whiffing just over and over and over again. Like they're just not hearing it. Not, not only are they not hearing it, they started talking bad about it and they started trying to like slandering him. So even with Paul, even like right after he's like, you can be baptized in the spirit and you can speak in ways that other people will understand you and you can see each other in new sorts of ways. Yeah, but some people are just not gonna listen. And sometimes you can spend years just absolutely pounding the, the table and no one is listening. And I think it's so interesting that the writer gives us both of those things in like two back-to-back -back sentences. So I think th this is kind of an interesting thing because empowerment is not easy. And it's not always fun. And the work of reminding people, quite often the work of reminding people that they are loved and that other people are loved can be really frustrating sometimes. The, the, the work of empowerment, this work of saying, you, first of all, you are welcome and you are loved, but also so is everybody else. And it's our job to show grace and compassion. And it's our job to try and find ways of communicating with people where they are. It's not easy work. It's really hard. Paul, I'm sure, was, was ready to just like scream into a pillow so many nights, I'm sure. I can't, I like the, this is not easy. And what, what we're invited to participate in is the work of inclusion and the work of empowerment, the baptism of John and the baptism of the Spirit, the, the movement of you were included, but the movement of, and so is everybody else. So for those of you who have been made to feel unwanted, or unclean or excluded. For those of you who have been made to feel disillusioned, for those of you who have been made to feel like the church is no place for you and that the movement of Jesus is not for you. First of all, I'm so sorry that that is part of your story. But second of all, that is not the story that Jesus is telling. The story that Jesus is telling is one that begins with a baptism of John in which the people who felt rejected by the religious establishment, they went and found a guy on the outskirts of town 
who told him, no, you are accepted. You are loved. So may you hear those words. And for those of us who have been made to feel disempowered, for those of us who need to be reminded, like, yeah, this is hard work. It is hard to feel unheard sometimes. It is hard to continue trying over and over and over again to help people see the humanity in us. It is hard. May we continue to meet them with grace. May we continue to show love. May we continue to do our best to bring shalom into the world. May we participate in the baptism of inclusion and in the baptism of empowerment. May you be included and may you be empowered. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for these, these images, these ideas, these, um, these rituals that we have that we often sort of lose the thread of. For those of us who feel disinherited, for those of us who feel unwanted, unloved, may we be reminded that we are loved, wanted, seen. And for those of us who feel like no one is listening, for those of us who feel disempowered, for those of us who feel unseen, unheard, may we, may we find that we are empowered in all sorts of new ways. May we be patient where patience is needed. May we speak truth where truth is needed. May we meet people where they need to be met. May we show them grace and may we show them love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.